Our passage this morning is found in Matthew, chapter 27, verses 1 to 26. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. This is God's word. And have a seat. Go ahead and keep your Bibles open to Matthew 27. And please pray with me as we uh, prepare our hearts to listen to God's word in this text. Gracious God, what a sobering passage to look at, and yet what a joyful hope we have in the result of where the story is going. Lord, would you help us to hear your voice this morning as we look into your word? Would your spirit be at work to convict our hearts, to open our eyes, to give us ears to hear 
would your spirit change our hearts even as we sit here beholding you in the pages of Scripture. Lord, we need you and we thank you that you are with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been walking through Matthew's gospel uh, together on Sunday mornings, which tells us the true story of how God is establishing his heavenly kingdom on earth, and particularly how he's doing that through the life, death, and resurrection of his eternal son, Jesus. And we're in the intense final chapters of that story now. And though it's taken us several weeks to kind of walk through these last chapters, it's good to remember that the events that we're watching unfold actually happened pretty quickly. It's taken several weeks for us, but we've been looking at what's only been a few days, even hours, in the story of Matthew. Just days ago, Jesus was greeted in Jerusalem as a king, as the hope of God's salvation for his people Israel and for the whole world. Now, he stands on trial and faces an imminent execution. In just the last few hours, one of his disciples has betrayed him. All of his followers have fallen away from him. The Jewish leaders, Jewish religious leaders have condemned him. He's been tossed back and forth between different authorities and courts. The crowds have now disowned him and the Roman authorities are ready to execute him. The whole thing happens so fast. You could barely blink. And when the dust finally settles at the end of this chapter, Jesus will be dead. The light of the world will have been snuffed out. And we'll be left with a lot of questions. What in the world just happened? We thought this one was the king. We thought he was going to be the one who would, who would take down Rome, who would bring God's salvation. And one of the questions that this passage in particular invites us to ask amid the swirling chaos of all of these events is quite simply, who did it? Who killed Jesus? On whose shoulders do we hang the greatest tragedy of human history? Who's responsible for this terrible evil that we see here? In other words, who done it? Who done it? If you think of a game of Clue, and you imagine all of the suspects gathered into one place, the inspector stands up and says, a murder has been committed, and someone in this room is guilty. Now, we already know the weapon and the location. It was on a cross at Golgotha. But who is the culprit? Who is actually guilty for killing Jesus? Is it Pilate, the Roman governor? Is it the crowds who stood before him? Is it the Jewish religious leaders, the chief priests and the elders? Or is it Judas or someone else? Who killed 
Jesus. Now, someone uh, will no doubt point out at this early stage of investigation the obvious fact that a Roman soldier killed Jesus. I mean, his hand held the nails and the hammer. He's the one who did it. Case closed, right? Not so fast. I mean, there's a certain sense in which he was absolutely guilty, but, but he was doing his job. He was executing a sentence handed down to him by a superior. Notice the very last line of our passage in verse 26. Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. See, Jesus was delivered over to the guards. He was handed over or betrayed. Those, those are all the same word, same Greek word in this passage. And it's one of the key words here. It occurs five times. This thing is Jesus was handed over. He was delivered over. And so who then is responsible? If we play a little clue with this passage or, or a little CSI and, and start with the crime scene and work our way backwards, retrace the criminal's steps, perhaps we can understand more clearly who is guilty for the death of Christ. And, and since the he in verse 26 of the he handed him over, since that he refers to Pilate, we'll start with him. He's suspect number one, Pontius Pilate. Now, Pilate was the Roman governor of Samaria and Judea. It's important to remember that that in Jesus' days, Judea was not a self-governing place. They were a a location, a land uh, that was occupied by Rome. They were under Roman jurisdiction and authority and rule. And that's one of the reasons the Jews were so eager for the promised king to come, so that he could come and throw off this Roman rule, this Roman oppression. That's also one of the reasons that Jesus' followers were so disappointed at how things seem to be unraveling here, because it looks like his promises are, are not going to come true. And so Pilate takes the stand, if you will, and the investigation begins. Where were you on the day Jesus was killed? I was in the governor's headquarters in the Praetorium. I never even went out to that hill. And what did you do exactly with Jesus? I am innocent of this man's blood. That's Pilate's testimony. Don't hang this thing on me. When I examined him, though the Jewish authorities who brought him to me and accused him of insurrection against Caesar, he made no response, which is amazing considering the charges. I was not convinced of his guilt. My wife warned me not to have anything to do with this righteous man, and so I tried to let him go. According to my very generous tradition of allowing a prisoner to go free during the Jews' Passover feast, I offered Jesus to be released. And do you know who they chose instead? A notorious murderer and insurrectionist named Barabbas. So talk to the crowds if you're looking for a cultist. They're the ones who demanded this, and they would have rioted to get it. Talk to the, to the chief priests and the elders. 
I might have delivered Jesus to crucifixion, but they delivered him to me. I am innocent of this man's blood. That's Pilate's testimony in the matter. And so the investigation has to move on, and, and we come to suspect number two, the crowds. Pilate says they're the ones who demanded it, so let's take a look at the crowds. And the evidence does not look good for the crowds. When Pilate asks them whom he should release, their cry was strong and unified. In the middle of verse 21, and they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what should I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. And then you look at verse 25, and the people answered, his blood be on us. And on our children, we take the blame for this. Sounds like we have a confession. Again, case closed, right? We can just hang it on the crowds and all go home happy. Not so fast. Take a look at verse 20. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So apparently the crowd wasn't working alone. They had a little motivation, a little help. So maybe we need to talk to the chief priests and elders before we close this thing off. That's suspect number three. We've seen a lot of different religious leaders through Matthew's story, often the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the early chapters, as the book comes to a close, the chief priests and elders begin playing a more central role, and specifically as representatives of what's called the Sanhedrin, the Jewish uh, high council, of which also, uh, uh, which was also made up of scribes from the Pharisees. So they're not absent the picture, but, but the chief priests over the temple and the elders of, Jer- of Judea are are now playing a more central role. And last week we saw their trial, if we can even call it that, of Jesus. When Pastor Bruce walked us through the end of chapter 26. These people have been trying to get rid of Jesus since at least chapter 12 in the story. So things aren't looking good for their case either. They're so bent on condemning him during his trial that they're willing not just to entertain false witness, but to actually go out and try and find people to lie under oath in order to condemn him. If only the liars could get their story straight, it might have worked. But finally, they get Jesus to confess to being the Son of God, which if not true, and in their mind can't possibly be true, was equivalent to blasphemy, to slandering God, in this case by claiming to be him. And so the chief priests and the elders, the the religious leaders of God's covenant people, Israel, are very clearly guilty according to our passage. It's never in question. The the chapter opens by emphasizing their guilt. Look at verses 1 through 2. When morning came... All the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel together against Jesus to put him to death. 
and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. And that's reiterated in verse 18. For Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. And there's that word again, deliver or hand over. So again, finally, case closed. It's the chief priest and the elders' fault. And yet, their plan could only work if they could get Pilate on board. See, only Rome had the authority to execute a criminal. The Jewish High Council didn't have that authority, which is why when they brought Jesus to Pilate, instead of charging him with blasphemy, they charged him with insurrection, with rebellion against Rome. Luke 23, verse 2 We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And the crowds later play that same angle. John 19, verse 12, telling Pilate, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So Pilate had to be on board this thing to work. Maybe he's not as innocent as he claimed to be. And yet neither could the chief priests and the elders plan work if Jesus was not first delivered to them. And so there's another layer at which this crime must be investigated, a fourth suspect that we have to look at, namely Judas. So like the chief priests and the elders, We've known uh, about Judas and his ill intentions for some time. Now, all of that was a bit of a surprise to the rest of the disciples, but, but we have the luxury of reading the story afterwards. We, we know where it's going, and we've seen Judas in opposition to Jesus. Back in chapter 26, verses 14 to 16, he's the one who went to the religious authorities, seeking, asking them basically, what will you give me if I hand Jesus over to you? He initiated that conversation. He sought them out in order to betray or deliver Jesus to them. Again, that's that key word. And he delivered. He led the Sanhedrin's henchmen to the garden. He pointed Jesus out so that they could arrest the right guy. He is henceforth and forevermore known, not just as Judas, but as Judas the betrayer. That's how he's referenced in Scripture, as in 27 verse 3. And he confesses to as much in verse 4. I have sinned by betraying or delivering over innocent blood. We have another confession, which Matthew interprets as the fulfillment and culmination of all Innocent blood shed throughout history. Jesus is that culmination. In Jeremiah 19, God condemned Israel for shedding innocent blood. They would actually take their own children and sacrifice them as offerings to Baal in the Valley of Hinnom. Which then became a graveyard for the defiled and the cursed 
as Jeremiah symbolically breaks a pot over it as a sign of God's coming judgment on Israel that they too will be broken. Jeremiah 19. And just as Israel continued to slaughter the innocent in the days of the prophet Zechariah, whom Matthew's also quoting here, such that they despised the shepherd God set over them to protect them. They paid him off for a measly 30 pieces of silver because they preferred their violent bloodshed to following God, uh, a price that Zechariah then threw to the potter in the temple. In the same way, Jesus was despised and sold for a measly price His innocent blood was shed as the culmination of all innocent blood throughout history. And like Jeremiah, leaving a graveyard for the defiled and the unclean as a monument to his betrayal and as a warning against all who likewise reject him, such will happen to you too. That's the case against Judas. Sobering and strong. So, when all of the evidence is weighed, and and you take it all together, who then is guilty for Jesus' death in this story? Is it Pilate? Guilty. He can claim innocence all he wants, but it was under his authority that Jesus was crucified. He's the one who gave way to fear and self-preservation rather than doing what he knew to be right. He knowingly sent an innocent man to his death. Pilate is guilty. How about the crowds? Guilty. Regardless of whether they're pawns or genuine opponents, they played their role in demanding Jesus' death and manipulating Pilate, and they took ownership of his execution. How about the chief priests and the elders? Guilty. They've been plotting Jesus' demise for months, if not years. They, and, and, and Pastor Bruce pointed this out last week, they've knowingly ignored the evidence of who Jesus was and manipulated their legal system in order to retain their power. They themselves, according to Jesus, are the climax of Israel's foolish rejection of her covenant God throughout her long and troubled history. Fill up the measure of your fathers, he says to them back in chapter 23. How about Judas? Guilty. Judas was not a victim, but a perpetrator, working his own angle, serving his own greed, betraying one of his closest friends for financial gain. At the end of the day, everybody in this passage is guilty. Which raises a question. What if the point of this passage is not to hang the guilt of Jesus' death 
on any one person or group, but to show us the sweeping scope of guilt. A guilt that all humanity bears together. Even you and me. Now you might say, how can I be guilty for something I, I clearly didn't do? I wasn't there. Don't, don't accuse me of doing something I couldn't have done. But think about the reason that Jesus died. The fact that this wasn't an accident. That, that though Jesus was brutally victimized, he was nobody's victim, but laid his life down willingly as a sacrifice for sins. Jesus died for sins. That means if you're a sinner, you killed Jesus. Matthew shows the guilt of both Jew and Gentile, of both friend and enemy. No one can rightfully claim innocence in this story. And the Apostle Paul makes a similar argument on a broader scale in Romans 3. So keep your finger in Matthew 27, but turn with me to Romans chapter 3. It's page 940 if you're using the Pew Bible. And listen to the universal scope of our guilt before God. Romans 3 verse 9. What then, Paul says, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's just be honest for a minute. That's really depressing. I mean, to, to read that list of indictments and to, and, and to recognize that he's talking to me in there, that's not the positive, encouraging stuff I kind of hope to hear when I come to church. But it's true. It's true. And we all know that it's true. If by sin we mean Rebellion against God. That's the most basic definition of sin that, that 
we can offer. If, if by sin, that's what we mean, then any thought that I have or word that I speak or action that I do or refuse to do that, that dishonors God, that, that disregards or disobeys his word or rejects his design, that, that takes credit for something that he alone deserves the credit for, or places more value on something other than him, or makes much of myself at the expense of someone else, any way that I fail to exhibit the perfect and holy character of God, if that's sin, we are all guilty. A fit of rage in traffic. Snapping impatiently at my whiny kid. Helping myself to office supplies at work. Cheating on a paper or a test. Cheating on taxes. Cheating on a spouse. Prioritizing my goals and dreams, my agenda over God's. Refusing to forgive someone who comes to me in repentance because I want them to feel the pain they've caused me. Caring more about my body image than the body of Christ. Taking a good thing, like money, or marriage, or sex, or alcohol, or food, or grades, or sports, or career, or a house, or a car, or a friend. Taking a good thing and then treating it like God. Looking to that thing to find my identity, to find my significance, my satisfaction, my security. Things that only God can be. Only God deserves to be. None of those things are ways that we actually honor God with our lives. All of them treat God like less than he deserves. None of them reflect his holiness and his love. And they may, they may seem like little things. But if the standard is God's holiness, then we all fall short. All of these are ways of saying to God, thanks, but I prefer to run life on my terms. It's much better that way. I'm happier. My kingdom come, my glory, and my will be done. That's sin. That's the heart of sin. It's this rebellion against God. And all of that is, in fact, treason against heaven, punishable by eternal death. So I may not have been in that crowd shouting crucify him. I might not have stood on the hill and watched him die. But in my sin, I am guilty. I killed Jesus. And so did you. And you. All of us. Martin Luther said, Doubt not that you are the one who killed Christ. Your sins certainly did. And when you see the nails driven through his hands, be sure that you are pounding. And when the thorns pierce his brow, know that they are your evil thoughts. Consider that if one thorn pierced Christ, you deserve 100,000. So 
great is our iniquity before a holy God. And yet, we have to remember why Jesus died. Here's the good news. He died to set us free. He died to rescue us from that sin we are so guilty of. To save the sinner, to fulfill his father's will in rescuing a people for himself. The greatest tragedy in human history was at the very same time the greatest and most profound act of love this world will ever know. Yes, I killed Jesus, and so did you. And yet Isaiah 53.10 tells us that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. He will rise again. So God gave his son in love, and Jesus willingly obeyed in love to save us. Not my will, he prayed in the garden, but your will be done. That's where the story's going in Matthew. And that's where Paul goes in the next verses in Romans 3. Look again with me in Romans 3, the next verse, verse 21. But now, so he's laid out this case for the universal guilt of all humanity. Then he says, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, that's a thick passage, but I want to point out just four words here. Justified, grace, propitiation, and faith. First, we are justified. That means we are declared not guilty of our sin. Wait a minute. You, you just spent the last 15 minutes telling us that we're all guilty. Yes, we are. And the reason Jesus died is so that we could be declared not guilty of that sin. So that you could be rescued from the punishment you rightfully deserve as an insurrectionist on God's kingdom. Well, how's that work? That's our second word. It's called grace. Grace is being given something wonderful, even though I deserve something terrible. We deserve in our sin and guilt eternal punishment in hell. 
Instead, God forgives us all our sin, gives us new life, and invites us into his family and his kingdom forever. That's grace. But how's that fair? And if we're truly guilty, how can God call us not guilty? How can he be any sort of judge? I mean, if somebody tried to do that today, we'd do everything we could to get that judge kicked out. How can you call not guilty someone who's clearly guilty? Well, that brings us to our third word, propitiation. That's a big word, but it's a beautiful word because it refers to a sacrifice of atonement offered to God that bears his holy anger against sin, that exhausts that anger such that there's no wrath left for those covered by the offering. Propitiation, an atoning sacrifice, is what allows justice to be served because God is pouring out his wrath but also mercy to be received because Christ is taking that wrath in our place. So God is both just and the one who justifies. But to receive that justification, to to receive that not guilty verdict before God, have our sins forgiven such that we are invited into his family with an eternal love relationship with God, You have to have faith, and that's the fourth word. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 21, redemption is to be received by faith. In verse 25, God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 26, so we don't earn a not guilty verdict by making it up by doing you know, community service or church service or, or trying harder for God to clean up our lives. You receive the gift of a not guilty verdict by God's grace on the basis of Christ's sacrifice through faith, through trusting in Christ to be my only hope, my only salvation, my rightful king. He is enough. That's what faith says, that Jesus really is enough. His blood was enough to cover my sin. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. And here's what that means. Though all of us stand before God guilty, guilty of our sin, therefore guilty of the death of Christ, there is grace. There is mercy. There is forgiveness. There is redemption. There is renewal. There is wholeness. There is hope. Though all humanity bears the guilt of Jesus' death, he gave his life in willing obedience to the Father to bring us back to God. There is grace for those who turn away from sin and take hold of Jesus. So what do we do with our guilt? If I killed Jesus, 
but he died for my sins, what does that mean for how I think about my guilt before the Father? What do I do with it? Well, first, we need to own it. We need to own the fact that we are guilty of sin before God and therefore guilty of the death of Christ. We need to acknowledge with broken hearts the true ugliness of sin and confess it to God. Some of us may be like the Jewish leaders who weren't convinced that they'd actually done anything wrong. And in fact, we're quite happy to have Jesus out of the way and go on living life on their own terms as if Jesus didn't matter. And if Jesus isn't who he says he is, you might have a point. But if he is, if he is the Son of God, if he is the true King of Israel, if he is our only hope for salvation, then you owe him your loyalty. And that begins by acknowledging your disloyalty and grieving over it. Of us may be more like Pilate, unwilling to acknowledge the full weight of our guilt or confess the role we played. So we're eager to shift the blame, to point out how bad they are compared to me. And yet, the standard that we're measured against is not the next guy. It's the holiness of God himself. And, and compared to that, as Paul put it, we all fall short of the glory of God. We need to see God for who he is in his holiness, which then allows us to see our sin for what it is in its ugliness in the guilt and shame, and to mourn and grieve over that and to own it. But then second, we need to receive from God the grace he offers through Jesus Christ. We don't stay in our guilt. We don't stay in our shame. We own it, and then we receive God's grace through Jesus. Some of us are more tempted to react like Judas to recognize our guilt, to even be brokenhearted over it. But instead of turning to Jesus for forgiveness, we punish ourselves as if to atone for our own sin. We view our sin as too ugly, as too horrible, too shameful and disgusting. There's no way God could ever forgive me for that. Friends, do not sell the blood of Christ so pitifully short. Do not ever think that his grace is not deeper still than your sin. And then third, we need to walk in God's grace daily in our fight against sin. So we own our guilt, we receive God's grace, but then we continue in God's grace. We walk in God's grace. We don't grow out of it and move on to something else. We walk daily in the grace that we have in Jesus in our continued fight against sin. Listen to what Paul says in Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. 
and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It's God's grace that teaches and trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives while we wait for Christ to return. We need his grace. He redeemed us, not just so that we could avoid the penalty of sin, but so that we could live lives that honor him in love and joy and personal relationship, what we were created to be in the first place. And so we live out those lives in grace, waiting for Christ's return with the hope that when he does come, this battle will finally be over. As long as we're in a fallen world, we will continue to face temptation. We will continue to fight against sin. When Jesus appears, there will be no more sin. There will be no more guilt, no more shame, no more death. We long for that day. Though all humanity bears the guilt of Jesus' death, he gave his life willingly and lovingly to pay for your sin. So what do I do with my guilt? I own it. I fall on his mercy and I walk in his grace. I want to give us some time to pray silently this morning to reflect on what we've seen in this passage, a few minutes, to, to do business with God, to pray. And if there is sin in your life that you need to confess to God and to own that you haven't confessed, I encourage you, do that right now. If there's sin in your life that you need to receive his mercy for, that you're continuing to punish yourself for and not accept his grace, I encourage you, do that now. Receive the grace of Christ. His blood is enough. And for all of us to seek his grace as we continue to walk with him. His mercies are new every morning because we need them every morning. And if you need to talk to someone about any of that, you can come talk to me or Pastor Bruce, one of our elders. You can talk right now after the service, set up a, a coffee. We'd love to listen and pray with you and help you apply the gospel of Jesus to your life. That's our prayer. So this is your time.